Welcome in. It's another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Along with Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. Coming up on today's show, we're going to check in with Ken Davis, who covers one of the best teams in the country, the UConn Huskies, a longtime Blue Ribbon contributing editor. So uh, looking forward to visiting with Ken here in just a bit. Chris, what's going on, man? Man, it's just another week of, of pretty good college basketball. I got to see a lot of good games and individual performances. So it's gearing up it's already. I mean, we're already seeing uh, conference games. So it's gearing up for January when uh, conferences uh, crank up and and all of a sudden you're you're playing for position for March. It really is kind of weird to see conference games already. I mean, you've seen some in the ACC and some of the Big Ten. You know, those conferences where they have a lot of teams and they play a lot of games. Yeah. Uh, they have to get try to some, squeeze them in. Yeah, try to squeeze in a, a couple in December anyway. I did Vanderbilt's game against Pittsburgh last night, and Pitt had played NC State back over the weekend, and actually they scored a really nice road win. Uh, Vanderbilt held them off by a point last night. Uh, it turned out to be a really good game over at Memorial Gym. Might uh, touch on that and, and the reunion that was there uh, a little bit later in the show. Let's talk about some individual performances to start with. And uh, I want to highlight a couple guys here, including Antoine Davis of Detroit Mercy, who has just some remarkable numbers for his career. He is closing in on 3,000 career points. Now, granted, there's an extra year thrown in there. Obviously, with yeah. COVID, guys got an extra season. But uh, I went over to their website, and they have a whole breakdown of uh, where he stands. 2,942 career points. He's nine away from Danny Manning uh, from Kansas uh, in his 2,951. That's 12th in the uh, history of college basketball. Also 58 points away from becoming the 11th player in uh, the history of NCAA hoops to reach 3,000 points and 725 points behind Pete Maravich's record of 3,667, which, by the way, he achieved in only three seasons. So it's unbelievable. I mean, he has 120 consecutive games in double figures, uh, which beats Chris Clemens' record uh, from Campbell from 15 to 19, and also Lionel Simmons, the L train from LaSalle back uh, from 1987 to 1990. Uh, I mean, it, it goes on and on about his, his threes, his scoring, but a remarkable career for Antoine Davis of Detroit Mercy. It would be kind of interesting if he broke the Pistols record because both Pistol and Antoine played for their fathers, Mike Davis at Detroit Mercy. I actually wanted to look dig into that comparison with Pistol even more. I, obviously, five years versus three, you can you can just scratch that. So I, I called a buddy of mine, Ron Higgins, uh, a veteran sports writer in both Louisiana and Tennessee, his father was the SID at LSU when Pistol played. Mm -hmm. So Ron saw every home game uh, that Pistol ever played. And he pointed out that it's really not going to be the true record, even though Maravich averaged, this is crazy, 38.1 field goal attempts in his career. Davis has averaged only 20.3, which is still a volume shooter. But Ron pointed out that obviously there was no three-point line then either. He thinks the true unbreakable record is the Pistols' 44.2 points per game scoring average, uh, which I would agree with. Nobody's going to get that. And he he also told me, having seen the Pistol for so much, he said, truth be told, uh, the Maravich uh, attraction in why he packed arenas was ball handling and passing, which were decades ahead of the late 60s and early 70s. So he was quite the passer. And he said one more thing that was pretty cool. Uh, the, uh, 
pistol played a game against Kentucky. You may remember this, uh, where he scored 64. I don't think you'd remember it specifically, but <laughs> as a Kentucky fan, you would remember the lore. Let me rephrase that. And Issel scored 51. That was one of only two SEC games ever where two players were over 50. The other was Chris Jackson of LSU who had 55 and Gerald Glass, 53 of Ole Miss. It's funny. Ron told me he saw both of those games in person. Oh, so, wow. Uh, he's getting to be a – he started young. Uh, he, yeah. he, he, he is a grizzled veteran, but he started young. Uh, but, yeah, it would be cool, I guess. And, and it's very much within the realm for Antoine Davis to get to that 3,667 points. Uh, he's also 49 made threes away from breaking the NCAA record by Wofford's Fletcher McGee. So, but that extra COVID year, you know, that sort of puts an asterisk on it. Yeah, Vanderbilt played Wofford back over the weekend, and, and I was looking at some of Fletcher McGee's uh, numbers from his career. 509 career three-pointers. That is unbelievable. I mean, he, that's just uh, that guy hard was to even like, off the think charts. about. One, one time uh, – a Wofford assistant, Dustin Kearns, who's now the head coach at Appalachian State, sent me a video he'd made. McGee was shooting in the dark. So the video the video didn't show anything, but you could hear the bouncing uh-huh. and the stripping of the nets. Uh, so the guy took it very seriously. But Antoine Davis, definitely, he's had a lot of opportunity. Again, he's played for his father, Mike, who took uh, Indiana to the 2002 NCAA title game. Uh, and just like Pistol played for press, uh, his father. So apparently you get a little leeway if dad's the coach and you're a decent player. But I've talked to several coaches who have had sons play for them, and they all agreed that they either wanted their son to be a mop-up player or really, really good because if he was in that middle ground and uh, you played him, uh, I can think of Tubby Smith's son at Kentucky, uh, you were in for, for some criticism from fans, for sure. Yeah, that's that's really the hard part is, is when they're somewhere in the middle and and you try to decide, you know, how how to best uh, make a player who's your son fit best for the team. Uh, that that like that, Saul that, Smith. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always thought Saul Smith was a better player than he got credit for. He played point guard in some really he good teams. He definitely was. I mean, he was probably a Kentucky was a higher level. He probably could have gone to. Missouri Valley or something like that and 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 dominated but Antoine Davis I mean he's a volume shooter for sure Mm -hmm. but uh he's done some incredible stuff and you know uh, it's good to see Mike Davis rehabilitate his career up in in Detroit and and have fun coaching his son uh with guys like Pistol and Antoine uh you know let the fans complain we're gonna let them crank away because because they can score the ball Chris, as we talk about terrific players, another one to watch is St. Louis guard Yuri Collins. He's averaging 11 assists per game. I looked up his season numbers. Five games of double-figure assists this season, including 20 assists against Tennessee State last week. That is remarkable yeah. what this guy's doing for the Billikens. It's unbelievable. And I think back to the to the spring when Tennessee I, – I think Tennessee had him on campus – and really thought they had a chance to get him out of the portal. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm guessing NIL, he got lured back to St. Louis. But Tennessee leads the nation in assists for field goals made. And if you throw this cat on there who's averaging 11.9, uh, wow. But I couldn't help but call uh, 
our buddy, your your friend and mine, uh, Penny Collins, no relation, mm-hmm. the the Tennessee State coach. After he dropped twenty dimes against one turnover against Tennessee State, that, that'll help your assist to turnover ratio, huh? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Penny, as usual, wit uh, in his response, he told me. Uh, Yuri's passing is equivalent to Steph Curry's wrist, <laughs> which I assume uh, he's comparing it to uh, the all-time uh, leading three-point shooters uh, or the best shooter in history, stroke. Uh, but he goes on to say that Yuri Collins seen things before they happen. I'll bet he would be a great chess player. Huh. So, uh, you know, that, to me, that's the sign of a great player, uh, a great passer. Every now and again, I'll fall down a rabbit hole uh, of uh, YouTube videos and there'll be a pistol or Larry bird. And those cats just had eyes in the back of their heads. I know that's a cliche, but they just saw stuff that other people couldn't see. Uh, One of the funniest things I've seen in recent memory was a video of, uh, let's say a, a, a gentleman of a certain age uh, who was probably a few pounds over his fighting weight playing in a pickup game with a bunch of younger dudes and just kicking their tails with no look passes, you know, over the shoulder passes, uh, no jump three pointers. Uh, but it, I'm, I'm fascinated by great passers because they do, they, they seem to know what's happening before it sets up. It's funny that Penny Collins mentioned Steph Curry because I saw him many times in college uh, because he played at Davidson, and I live in Chattanooga and was able to see them a lot. And the thing that stood out to me about Steph Curry was not his shooting, but the fact that he too saw things before they happened and how he was always looking up the floor and always making the right pass. and and uh, never doing anything dumb with the ball, just putting it where it needed to be. And so kudos to Yuri Collins. Uh, he's a prolific elite assist maker. And wow, I'm sure Tennessee fans would have loved to have seen that guy on this roster. And Penny Collins had a few assists in his day uh, playing point guard for the Belmont Bruins. You covered him, right? I sure did. I remember him from the time he was about an 18-year-old freshman. And boy, he turned into a terrific player. The one thing I always liked about Penny Collins, if somebody zoned him, you could put him at the free throw line and he was tall enough and, and a really good passer and he could really distribute you know, from the middle of that zone. Uh, I, when, when I see people put somebody in there in a situation like that, I always think of, uh, of uh, Brian Collins when he played at Belmont back in the day. Let's talk about another player, unfortunately, who's out for the season, and that is uh, Arkansas big man Trayvon Brazil. A knee injury had happened in their win over UNC Greensboro. He'd been playing really well, averaging 11 points and six rebounds. Of course, he transferred from Missouri to Arkansas. But been a big factor, and and for a team that's really good, that's a big loss. It is. I was actually watching that game when the injury happened. Um, He got nudged sideways, and his foot stayed planted, but his knee did not. Uh, I could just tell on the replay. I, my wife, occasionally I can get her to watch games with me. <laughs> when I don't go to them in person, I'll watch them on TV, and she's just giving in. <laughs> now, <laughs> you wore her down over I, the years. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but uh, I told her, I said immediately, I, I'm afraid that's an ACL or an MCL, mm-hmm. and and it, it was. And 
I hate that because I think with him, uh, Arkansas would have evolved. They're not playing as well as I think they'll play in, in March. I think they would have evolved into a national championship contender. Now, without him, they'll have to go to Makai Mitchell, uh, who in that game against Greensboro, which they were losing for much of it, he responded with, I think, his best game since transferring from Rhode Island. He had 13, 14 uh, boards and four blocks. They've got his twin brother, uh, Mikel. Then they've got this kid, Kamani Johnson, who when he gets in there, he plays well. And Jalen Graham, a transfer from Arizona State, who was second team all Pac-12 last year and has barely seen the floor this year. So I think Arkansas has plenty of, of bodies. But uh, Trevin Brazil, he was he was special, and I just really hated for the kid. Speaking of injuries, too, Michigan lost their starting point guard, Jalen Llewellyn, uh, the Princeton transfer for the season with a torn ACL in their game against Kentucky uh, Sunday over in London. You you, you saw players from both teams and coaches go over and and wish him well when the game was over with. I watched quite a bit of that one. That was the first time I'd really seen uh, Kentucky this season. I'd seen Michigan a time or two. Uh, That that was Kentucky's best win. They beat uh, Michigan 73-69. One thing that stood out to me about John Calipari's team is their three-point shooting. That's something that's been lacking for that program for a little bit. They hit 9 out of 15 in that game. Wallace made 4 for 4, and Reeves hit 3 out of 4. And C.J. Frederick, uh, we know he's a good shooter too, uh, hit one off the bench. So if they can make it from long distance, that might change the whole season for them, especially with what they have inside with, uh, obviously, Oscar Shibway and and Jacob Toppin. Yeah, I don't think Antonio Reeves, the Illinois State transfer, was starting uh, originally, and he was in the starting lineup in London, and you know, not only does he have great positional size, he's almost as good a three-point shooter as T.J. Frederick, but he can also put the ball on the floor, uh, and and it's also a post-up threat. So, I think he's a key player as they move forward. That's funny. That I, I was cool. Uh, I, I'll tell you, Jay Billis has had a, a great uh, preseason so far. He's been to San Diego to see a game on an aircraft carrier. He's been to Maui. He's been to Portland. He's been, to, I think, to the Big Apple. And then to London, uh, I couldn't help but think, uh, though, that the timing for that game was a little bad. Uh, the the fa- uh, there weren't the stands weren't that full, and I thought, well, England is playing in World Cup soccer right now. <laughs> Maybe you should schedule away from World Cup soccer. Yeah, you kind of got to stay there. away from that one. <laughs> it's like scheduling yeah, against but, the NFL uh, in the in the U.S. But it's cool though. I I don't know why. I I don't know. Do you know why they went to London? I'm. I'm not quite sure. It was a doubleheader. Uh, there was another game there, too. Yeah, it was a women's game, right? And, and uh, you know, spread the gospel of college basketball to a nation that uh, is in love with uh, soccer. I, I don't know, but uh, it was cool, though. And the O2, I, I, is that what they call that arena? Uh-huh. Uh, that, there's been some cool concerts in there. I know that. What is going on with North Carolina? They were preseason number one. Now you're talking about four straight losses. Uh, saw some of their game at Virginia Tech on Sunday. They are the fastest number one team to drop all the way out of the rankings in history and, and by a, a long stretch. Uh, Michigan State was second. It was like 10 weeks later than, than what North Carolina did this season. Uh, I thought Jeff Borzello of ESPN.com wrote a good article breaking down their issues. Uh, he pointed to chemistry and three-point shooting and missy, missing uh, Brady Manick and just a, a lack of depth. What are you seeing from the Tar Heels? Yeah, I, I, first of all, um, it has to be pointed out that they, they haven't just lost to a bunch of chumps. Uh, and most of the games were close. Iowa State, they lost by five out in 
Oregon, uh, Alabama in that epic four OT game. They lost by a deuce. Uh, that could have gone either way. They lost at Indiana, which a lot of people do. Baycott was playing hurt. And then they lost at Virginia Tech, which a lot of people do, without Baycott. So uh, Hubert Davis isn't pushing any panic buttons. Really, uh, last year the Tar Heels were kind of a bubble team, and they got in the tournament and turned it on from there. But, yeah, Brady Manick was a presence, I don't think, just with his three-point shooting. I think he's just a tough, tough dude. And uh, they'll probably be okay, but it's crazy. Uh, they're only the sixth team to go from preseason number one to on rank since at least the 1961-62 season. So uh, uh, UCLA, oddly enough, uh, in 1965-66 fell out of the poll after just three weeks, but there was only 10 teams ranked then, so maybe not as big a deal. But, yeah, they're Blue, Ribbon, Blue Ribbons preseason number one. I say that unashamedly. Uh, I still believe they're a good team, and – they'll be heard from before this season is done. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. But come on, you're making Blue Ribbon look bad. Let's get it together yeah, here. Yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> Chris, this week's guest is a guy I know you know well and have for many years. A terrific basketball writer has covered UConn for a long time as a Blue Ribbon contributing editor. He is Ken Davis. Ken, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you guys, and thanks for having me on. Ken, I know that you covered UConn in its absolute heyday. And that's a competitive beat up there. And you were always known as, you know, the best or one of the best uh, beat writers. I, I forget how many papers used to travel with the Huskies. Was it more than 20? Uh, uh, I don't know if it ever reached that high. But I know, like, even when we went to the Alaska shootout and uh, Maui and those things, there were you know, there at least 12 or 13. So that's that's crazy. But you've seen you've seen the best of UConn basketball. And now this team comes along, and I, I went back and read your Blue Ribbon story. Man, you were dead on with with some of the quotes uh, uh, that you got from Coach Hurley. Uh, but this team has now won 10 straight by double figures, something no other UConn team has done. Uh, despite, you know, we, we had a – I thought we had a, a good report, an accurate report on UConn uh, in Blue Ribbon. But they've exceeded what we thought. What do you think about their start? Uh, I'm stunned. I mean, I thought that they would be a good team by the end of the year, but they have jumped off the charts here to start with it. And you look at their Ken Palm ranking, their efficiency. I think they're the only team that's in the top 10 in offensive and defensive efficiency. There may be one other, and I forget who it is. Well, you know, you look at Houston, number one, and UConn's number two in both the Ken Palm and the net, no one expected that right now. I mean, I thought they would get better as they went along, but you're talking about a team that Dan Hurley went into the transfer portal, which he didn't do the year before. Guys that haven't played together, he lost eight players from last year, uh, leading, yeah. you know, leading off with R.J. Cole, the point guard, who you know was kind of the center of the universe the last two years. Uh, Dama Sanago, obviously, who I featured prominently in in our blue ribbon preview um big east player of the year in the preseason here i mean he wasn't even recognized by the coaches a year ago in the preseason and now he's a player of the year candidate nationally he's off to a great start and and you got guys like jordan hawkins stroking it from three andre jackson is 
you know, not the greatest shooter in the world, but God, he does everything, you know, and he's, uh, I think he kind of sets the tone for the whole team with his athleticism. And he starts off the season with a broken pinky finger. Uh, Hawkins had a concussion. Uh, They still don't have Samson Johnson, who had a foot injury in the first game. So they've had injuries that that could have set them back. But um, I think the thing that we see overall, just like Sanago at the beginning of my story, talking about how he wanted to add a banner wants to get a ring that, uh, you know, they haven't had. I mean, here's the the thing about UConn in its history. I came here in 1985 to work for the Hartford Current, and that was Don Perno's last year, and the the program was a mess. Then Jim Calhoun came in, and it took till 88 to win the NIT title, and then 99 to win an NCAA title. But they won four NCAA titles in 15 years, and then they kind of became irrelevant um, you know, after Kevin Ollie's championship in 2014, they haven't won an NCAA tournament game since 2016 after winning four That's national crazy. championships in 15 years. So there's still that ache at the end of the season that everyone involved with the program wants to rectify. You had a great quote uh, as you ended your story. Uh, you, you talked about how Hurley – first-round loss to New Mexico State felt like death. And three months later, as the Huskies began summer workouts, Hurley was asked how long it took to overcome that emotion. And then, then you quote him as saying, so you're assuming I've moved on? <laughs> uh, he has definitely not moved on, has he? No, no. That was my that was my question to him um, in June when we were uh, in the first round of summer sessions. And I said, you know <laughs> – how long did it take you? And and he looked at me and just laughed and said, you're assuming I've moved on. And, and he hasn't. I mean, and he's kind of questioned himself. Also, I wrote about it um, that, you know, his approach to the NCAA tournament. Has it been wrong with these guys? Has it been right? And they just haven't played well. But, I mean, they've lost to Maryland and New Mexico State the last two years. And like I said, they haven't won it since before he came. It was 2016. And they've, they've actually lost – three NCAA tournament games in a row. And in 2016, they beat Colorado, Colorado, and then they lost to my alma mater, Kansas. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's uh, the the fan base here obviously is craving them to get back in the tournament and advance further. I think they'll definitely advance further this year. I don't know if they're a national championship team, but they've certainly gotten off to that start with a 10 and 0 record. Our guest is Ken Davis. Uh, he covers UConn. You're talking about Dan Hurley, and I'm old enough to remember him playing for Seton Hall. I saw him play against my alma mater, Western Kentucky, in the tournament back in 93. Uh, what kind of fit has he been for that program, as you mentioned, in, in the aftermath of what happened with Kevin Ollie? Well, I think he was probably the perfect hire. Uh, just uh, He's got a little bit of Calhoun in him. He obviously has his dad in him. He has his brother Bobby in him. Uh-huh. Uh, the Hurley guys are you know, notorious for – the way they work, their work ethic, the, the the way they they structure their defense, this team obviously has that. But I I'm really impressed this year with the way they're running their offense. I mean, he made a decision pretty much right after last season to go four out and one in with Sonogo. They actually have two in because Donovan Klingon is off the third yeah. grade started as a freshman. I mean, who has a backup like that? Seven two, two hundred sixty five pounds, and and the kid has shown no sense of intimidation being in the on the big stage and he's out of bristol 
I mean, the thing Bristol's most famous for is, uh, you know, satellite dishes. With <laughs> I was going to make that joke. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you drive through Bristol and that's all you see. But I mean, <laughs> the kid has stepped in and, you know, I thought he would progress, but boy, he's jumped right in, was MVP of the, of the Phil Knight Invitational and, and made a big boom on, on national TV and, and was really good last. I think they had a 12 to one run against Florida Wednesday night uh, with Sonogo on the bench. So they did. Um, I watched that game and Klingon outplayed Colin Castleton, Florida's all SEC uh, center. Klingon's unbelievable. Uh, I was really impressed, like you said, with his demeanor, but he's got great hands and feet. He's not a plotter by any means. He's no, he's a factor. I think kind of the, a play that um, indicated the way UConn's been playing last night. There was one play where Andre Jackson blocked the shot and uh, Calcaterra got the ball out on the break and they lobbed it into uh, Klingon for a dunk. And that just kind of shows how they are on both ends of the floor and, and, and how they can get in transition and, and make other teams look bad. I mean, look, their last five wins – I mean, these aren't the greatest teams in their leagues, but Oregon, Alabama, Alabama obviously is good. Iowa State, Oklahoma State, and Florida. I mean, it's not – they don't have one of the toughest schedules. It's not a Gonzaga kind of schedule, but but those are five, you know, top five – you know, power five conference programs that they've beaten here in a row. Now they play Long Island, which I think is given one percent chance of winning in their in their last uh, conference game, and then they, then they'll dig into the Big East and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you beat five power conference teams in a row. I mean, that that's impressive. No matter uh, where those teams might stand in their leagues, Ken, one of the things that stands out, and you're talking about them playing, you know, four out one in. This team's been really good from three, averaging thirty six percent and hitting nine per game, and also defending the three opponents only three per game and twenty seven percent. How big of a factor has that been? Well, I think it's huge because you see the runs that they go on and they're they're beating teams by over 20 points. I think it's something like 24 points a game, the margin of victory. So I think that keys everything. And, and Jordan Hawkins has been so big. And the, you know, he had a concussion at the beginning of the year. And I think he's had a history of that. I think it's a little bit of a concern. But, boy, he's got a beautiful stroke. And and the the ball movement has been great. You talk about a Hurley style defense, but they've really changed their approach offensively. Ken Sonogo has been unbelievable. Uh, your story, as you said, you focused on him in Blue Ribbon, but he took this season seriously. His body looks great. He's moving great. Uh, unbelievable post moves, but he's also has the weapon of the three-point goal and, and the face-up game. Talk about how he's improved as good as he was last year. I think he's way better this year. Yeah, he worked over the summer facing the basket, and, and you know, people kind of probably probably moan when he takes a three-point shot, but but he <laughs> hits some, you know. he's He's got a nice stroke. That's that's not obviously the focal point of his game, but he's his body is so powerful, and I, and I also talked to him back in June about, uh, you know, not not getting in foul trouble, which he did a little bit last year. And I think that's where he's making the biggest improvement. He's he's playing a smarter game. He's he's not, I mean, he's, you know, he's not going to be any good if he's on the bench. So the, the old saying, you know, you can't help your team if you're sitting on the bench with foul trouble. So I think he's gotten out of that. And, and of course, he's. I don't think anybody's playing any more than 24 or 25 minutes right now. 
So that'll be a great thing for them. They Danny worried about them getting worn down last year, especially Sonogo, all the minutes they had to log. And that'll be huge by the time they in, enter into the Big East tournament and the NCAA tournament. If they can if they can be rested and going in there, then they'll do very well. Ken, one more before we let you go, and kind of, kind of a bigger picture uh, question about UConn. I always felt like they got left behind when the conference realignment happened, uh, and there have been several rounds, but you know, a few years back, and I always felt like UConn should be in a power conference. How has the return to the new Big East been a good thing for that school? Oh, it's been huge, not only for the players, but for the fan base to get back. I mean, when you have something like that, it's taken away. I mean, when I came here in 85, you know, there was always the talk about the little three in the Big East, which is Providence, Seton Hall, and UConn. And obviously, they all had their share of success eventually in the, in the Big East. But, you know, it took a while under Calhoun to get that going. But then you win regular season championships and, and uh, the Big East tournament over and over, and it becomes the fabric of, of your program. And you're right. It, they – they really became irrelevant in the American. They 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 didn't win the conference. Um, they they didn't they couldn't recruit. That that was the main thing. It wasn't the draw. If you go out and you're saying Big East, you're going to get kids to come to the, your program. And the American was a competitive conference. I'm not slamming the American at all, but it's not it's just not the Big East. And to come back and make major decisions like making your football program an independent. Now they're going to a bowl game under Jim Mora. It's kind of worked out pretty well, but coming back has been huge for the fan base to get revitalized. And as you saw on the Florida game on TV, they showed uh, the poster carrying around of the Big East Championship trophy. And, you know, this is a big deal. Like Sonoga said, they want to get a ring. They want to get a banner. And, um, you know, it, they came late to the party sort of as a national program out of the Yankee conference and struggling early in the big East, but they certainly arrived there under Jim Calhoun and, and it now, you know, it looks like they're moving back in that direction. Yeah. That, that little three had some pretty big moments. Uh, even if you think back to the eighties and Providence and Seton hall making uh, trips to the final four. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much for the time. Really good stuff. And uh, look forward to seeing how this uh, UConn team progresses as we go through the season here going to be interesting thanks a lot guys thanks buddy well fun to catch up with ken davis who's covering a really good yukon team uh blue ribbon contributor and uh we'll again chris we'll be watching how that team does but dan hurley has it going on there i, I don't care what power conference teams you're playing if you win five in a row over power conference teams and including three out in that phil knight invitational that's pretty impressive work by that team yeah and they just handled florida and like ken pointed out Coach Hurley doesn't – I don't think anybody's playing more than about 25 minutes a game for that team. So there's some depth. People are getting rested. Uh, and I think that bodes well for the stretch run. So I look forward to being able to see how far UConn can progress. I knew it was a great hire with Danny Hurley. Again, as Ken pointed out, he comes from great stock. His father's a legend at St. Anthony's, and his brother's a legend from Duke and they're just competitors. Uh, they Apple doesn't fall far from the tree with that bunch. 
Speaking of TV, it was cool to see Dick Vitale in those games at Madison Square Garden with Dan Schulman earlier this week. It was Jimmy V week, and they had that Jimmy V uh, uh, event at MSG. Illinois beat Texas in overtime, 85-78. Duke over Iowa, 74-62. But as, as much as anything, with, with all his health issues and being away for, uh, for quite a while and not even being able to speak, do you hear Vic, Dick Vitale with, with Dan Schulman? It just, it just felt right, didn't it? It really did. I, I mean, people that uh... – I don't know. Twitter's a, a nasty place that's gotten even nastier, but sometimes people will criticize Dick for his views or whatever. But I'll tell you what, he is as legit and, and, and sincere a person as you'll run across. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years, and when he says he's going to do something, he'll do it. And nobody, but nobody that I know, has been as more passionate uh, a warrior against cancer and raised as much money, especially for, for uh, pediatric cancer. And I thought, I thought it was just so fitting that he, uh, the poster boy for cancer research and prevention was able to, to, to beat it back as well as, you know, for him who loves to talk, um, maybe just as painful a situation was the issue with his vocal cords. And mm-hmm. he sounds I don't know. I, I think he sounds about 20 years younger. Uh, he was uh, demonstrably hoarse in recent years, yeah. and clearly there was something wrong. And, you know, so he so he goes through chemo. He, he goes through that scary operation with your vocal cords, which isn't a guarantee, by the way, that anything will be fixed. And, you know, to hear him back in, in pretty good form, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great ambassador for the game. I'll, I'll never forget in – 2008 he was uh they had a press conference it was in houston houston or or san antonio i can't remember which i guess it was san antonio for the final four and i went up to him after and i I said richly deserved and uh he kind of downplayed it and i said no no man you you got to stop and consider when you began with espn in the early 80s college basketball didn't have near uh, the notoriety uh, and the fan support that it does now. And and you and ESPN uh, are humongous reasons for that. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he deserves his spot in every Hall of Fame he gets. And uh, long may he call games and and keep kicking it and, and raising money for cancer research. It kind of jogged my memory that uh, the other day was Chris Felica's last show with uh, College Game Day. Now, wasn't he an assistant to Dick Vitale for many years and helped him, you know, with stats and, and all sorts of things? I think Chris did, and then he had another assistant too that's no longer there uh, with him. But uh, yeah, uh, Dick readily admits he doesn't come up with that stuff all by himself. And it's funny. This is a funny story. Uh, Blue Ribbon was as you know, a little late coming from the printer and the, the production coordinator from, from ESPN called me and and said, Hey, we've got your digital version, but we can't print it. And I said, well, yeah, that's for a reason. Somebody bootlegged it a few years ago and sold it. (laughs) And she said, well, uh, two people, really want to get their hands on a printed copy. They don't want a digital. And I said, let me guess. One of them's Dickie V. And and she said, yes. And the other one was Bill Walton, who is 
if you look on his Twitter feed, he's his picture is uh, of him in a TP reading a copy of Blue Ribbon. So she to, to get five copies digitally printed of Blue Ribbon, it was going to cost her fifteen hundred dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> so uh, she shelled it out because Dickie V needed it, and and uh, you know Dickie V he. He don't like that iPad. He wants the real thing in his hand. So <laughs> he's finally got it. I made sure that we uh, we drop shipped their their order right to to Bristol and and got it in his hands. And to Bill Walton too. The yearbook yeah, of right. champions. It was fun to be at Vanderbilt's reunion of the 1988 Sweet 16 team. It happened on Wednesday night as Vanderbilt played Pittsburgh, which was the school that Vanderbilt beat to go to the Sweet 16 back in 1988. Uh, when Barry Goheen hit a couple memorable shots, including a buzzer beater to send that game to overtime out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And Vanderbilt ended up winning 80-74, to and they advanced on and uh, ultimately lost to Kansas. But they had quite a few of the players from that team. Uh, Barry Goheen had a chance to, to do an interview with. Uh, Will Purdue, of course, everybody remembers him. Barry Booker, who was a great shooter. Uh, I remember seeing out there last night uh, Scott Drought and Steve Grant, Derek Wilcox, and and it really brought back memories of those days for that program in that building where it seemed like every year uh, a big non-conference team would come in and get picked off by the Commodores. One year it was Indiana. That particular year it was North Carolina, and that was a huge win for them early in the season. Uh, I know Louisville came in, and Barry Goheen had a buzzer beater in that game. And then they later in that 88 season, they beat Kentucky. There was a big Will Purdue dunk at the end, and uh, it was just such a big deal. I, I grew up an hour up the road from here. And uh, remember all that well. But it, it was fun to see those guys. They were coached by C.M. Newton back then. And they won 20 games that year and, and went to the Sweet 16. And um, it, it just brings back memories. It's fun to see those guys and, and just think about that time period. And, uh, you know, some of them look close to the same and some of them look very different. But uh, it, it's always neat to see former players. And, and, and you know, it, it takes you back, to for me, to when I was a teenager. And uh, I, I think a lot of people had those same feelings in, in that building last night. You know, I always enjoy uh, going to Memorial Gym. It, 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 there hasn't been much magic uh, in the last couple of years, but uh, definitely in that time period you're talking about. And Kevin Stallings, his team had some great wins sure too. Uh, mm -hmm. One that immediately pops to mind, uh, it wasn't super relevant on a national scale, but it was in the NIT. Remember, they, they trailed uh, with 0.5 seconds left. They were in the, inbounding the ball at the other end. And, Kevin drew up a play and they threw it the length of the court and uh, Vandy uh, kid caught it and, and scored. Uh, so yeah, Memorial magic, some strange things happen in that building. And it's to me, it's the Fenway park of college basketball. Uh, I hope they never tear it down in, in favor of a new building. I don't think they have any more room on campus, do they, if, even if they wanted to? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, as, as someone who works there, I can tell you there's not a whole lot of room left on campus. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. have as much stuff crammed into a small space as you possibly can, and there's actually going to be more because they're going to build, build a new basketball building um, behind the north end zone uh, at the football stadium. But not an arena. No, not an arena, workout just a, a workout facility for, for both programs. Yeah. And they have such a small space that they're going to stack the courts on top of one another uh, wow. one on the bottom floor and one on the on the next floor and that reminds me of georgia state's old gym did mm -hmm. you ever cover a i game sure at did state? at the uh the third floor gym at georgia state yeah I, I was shocked when i found out the other day that georgia state has a new building so like they're yeah, not playing at the third new, floor yeah. gym anymore uh the new place yeah, looks beautiful I, I, uh I, I saw a couple photos from it but yeah i did several awesome. games yeah. at that uh, gym at georgia state all right chris to wrap up something fun here uh 
Well, Vanderbilt played Pittsburgh. Jerry Stackhouse and Jeff Capel, the respective coaches, uh, they are old friends. They go way back to when they were kids in North Carolina, and they played high school ball and AAU ball. Of course, Stack went on to be a star at North Carolina. Same thing for Jeff Capel at Duke, and they had some some battles uh, when they played for those two rival programs. But Jerry's told us a story on Monday night at our coaches show about how he used to go pick up Jeff Capel in his old Monte Carlo that uh, <laughs> had, you know, he had to put down pieces of wood on the floorboard to keep the, his feet from going through and, and you know, poured a quart of oil in it every time he wanted to go anywhere. And he was always wondering if they were going to get there and get back from these games. But it, it made me think of an old car I had, this old 71 Ford Maverick, which uh, had to, its share of oil and transmission issues. I would pour transmission fluid in it, and it would pretty much come out the out the bottom and end up in the driveway. Uh, do you have a particular car that was like that, or just a, a worst car you ever had? Or, or do, I mean, did did you have a a cool car when you were in high school? What, what was up with that back then, dude? I always thought we were brothers from another mother. I had a Maverick too. Did you really? And and yes, and it it was a a piece of crap. <laughs> I'll never forget the speakers uh, vibrated, and to this day, whenever I hear "Midnight Train to Georgia" by Gladys Knight and the Pips, for whatever reason, that song, that bass line, made those speakers vibrate like a thousand uh, bumblebees. And, and I'll never forget that in that Maverick. Uh, but it, it was that was not a good era for Ford. I also had a, <laughs> a Mustang II. Yeah, I remember uh, that car. It, it was it was a horrific automobile, and the steering wheel when you got up to highway speeds it would vibrate, and it would almost like vibrate your you, you know you you couldn't hardly hold on to the thing. And I took it back, took it back, took it back. And and they always said they'd fixed it and it never got fixed. And one night, this is a crazy story. It's funny how things jog your memory. For whatever reason, I I was working on my first newspaper job, but James Taylor was was performing at East Tennessee State. And uh, the features editor knew I was a big James Taylor fan. So they said, hey, do you want to go cover the concert? And, And I did. And it was the day after Belushi died. And I remember Taylor and, and he were great friends and he had a tribute to Belushi. But anyway, so the concert went on and and it was pretty late and I was booking it to get back to uh, the paper. And a cop pulled me over and said, you were going, I don't know what it was I was going. And he ticketed me and I said, there's no way because my my steering wheel was not vibrating and <laughs> at 60 miles per hour this thing starts vibrating there's no way i would so the the very first speeding ticket i ever got i'm proud to say I, i've only gotten four in my life and all of them were were frame-ups no uh i deserved one of them uh but this one there's no way i was going that fast because that stupid mustang too that that was a Ford did not. That was not a good era for the Ford Motor Company. Uh, uh, you'll recall the Pinto, the, the, the Pinto that had yes. the exploding problem and all that. Uh, but yeah, the the Maverick. It's funny. We both think back to the Maverick. It was a God. It was a it was a puke orange color. Uh, and we later found out this was before you had Carfax that it had been wrecked uh in the back and the bumper and 
it was just, but, but I'll never forget midnight train to Georgia. Gladys Knight is one of my all time favorites, but uh, <laughs> didn't she just get in the Kennedy center honors? I think I'm really drifting now, but uh, yeah, I'll never forget that song because of that's that daggone Maverick. Those speakers <laughs> would vibrate like anything. Yeah, you, you should have uh, used the Sammy Hagar line. I can't drive 55. No, really, I can't drive That's 55. Right. <laughs> uh, there was no way. I got framed that night. Yeah. He didn't care at all that I was on deadline. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come uh, on, and, man. And I had to write this James Taylor concert. <laughs> he, he wasn't having it. All right. Well, uh, winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. <laughs> Always great to uh, visit with my buddy Chris Dorch, and we'll do it again next time, man. I knew that some James Taylor reference was coming. <laughs> I can't wait till next week and see what you come up with to segue out of the show. Yeah, all you got to do is call. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We'll talk to you next time.